What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This is not your fault. But it is. This one's on me. I showed him the way. Steven Spielberg, in a rare, candid moment there, apologizing for the existence of the Jurassic World movies. Stop. Okay, fine. That was Chris Pratt with Bryce Dallas Howard in a clip from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. We've got a review of the J.A. Biona-directed follow-up to the 2015 box office hit. That review plus the top five? No, I can't say it. Not in the billboard. We'll tell you after the break. Best top five ever. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. If you're listening to the podcast edition of this show, you saw in the title that we were reviewing the new Jurassic World movie, which we are. You may have also seen something in the title that looked like Top 5 Movie Crises, which would have made for a perfectly fine tie-in with the discussion of the new Jurassic World movie, many, many crises in that one, as I'm sure we'll get to. Just a few. Or maybe you misread that Top 5 subject as the Top 5 Movie Crise, which would have made for a bit of a stretch as a tie-in with Fallen Kingdom. Well, we already covered that. Michael Phillips and I did Christ figures many, many shows That's ago. That's true. But no, this week's top five is not movie crises. It's not movie Christ either, but rather movie Chris's, as in Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Pine, and Jurassic World star Chris Pratt. I only counted four Chris's there. <laughs> well done, Josh. We'll see who we can throw into the mix, and we will get to all that later in the show when we share our definitive power ranking of the four movie Chris's with one movie Chris to be named later. We'll also get the best of 2018 so far conversation started with our new poll question. But first, given Adam's advanced disdain, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom went from being the one summer blockbuster I really didn't need to the one I really wanted to be great. Time to find out if it managed this miraculous feat. Do these animals deserve the same protections given to other species? Or should they just be left to die? These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're going to be here after. Reacquainting myself with Fallen Kingdom's predecessor earlier today, no, Josh, I didn't rewatch it. I found something unwittingly quite prescient in my notes for our review. I described Jurassic World as Jurassic Park meets. Aliens meets the impossible. Now, I'm pretty sure they hadn't already announced that J.A. Bayona, director of The Impossible, was set to assume Colin Trevorrow's spot as director of Fallen Kingdom back when Jurassic World was released, and yet I spotted some connection. I am hoping for a few good J.A. Bayona moments, was your explanation in our show Slack for being, what was it, Josh, morbidly curious about this movie? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. And at least on the surface, you should have plenty to consider. After all, the impossible element remains. Chris Pratt's Owen Grady and Bryce Dallas Howard's Claire Deering returned to Isla Nublar in an effort to rescue any remaining dinosaurs while also desperately trying to survive a natural disaster decimating a seeming paradise. Pratt's animal behaviorist, isn't that what he says in this movie, Josh? Just go with Velociraptor Trainer. Velociraptor Trainer. Velociraptor Trainer. Yeah. You're right. That does look better on a business card. Has figured out how to coexist with vicious creatures, not unlike perhaps the hero of Bayono's most recent film, A Monster Calls. 
And what of the director's brilliant debut, The Orphanage? Well, wouldn't you know it, Much of Fallen Kingdom just so happens to take place in a creepy mansion full of doors and passageways and secrets and monsters of the human and reptilian variety. There's a lot of Bayona DNA mingling around with these enhanced dinosaur genes, Josh. Did you get enough moments to make it worthwhile? And does Pratt, he of the four Chris's who will get our attention later in the show, get enough to do to make you rethink where you've rated him for better or for worse? It confirmed where I rated Pratt. Okay. We'll get to that later in the show. It did not give me enough Bayona moments, which is really strange and something I will continue to puzzle over given that we just walked out of the screening, especially because of that impossible connection. There is a movie, and I know we split on it, but I would hope I don't remember the details of our argument. But I do think you would agree that those opening sequences leading up to the natural disaster in that film, which was a tsunami – were impeccably crafted in ringing suspense. I think we may have differed on... Um, How exploitative we thought that yeah, was or manipulative, yeah. yes. In the end and where the movie went from there. But well-crafted where the family in that pool, before they knew what's going to hit them, the first hints that something was coming, that was Spielbergian stuff, at least for me. It was way better crafted than anything we get here where there is a similar impending natural disaster and the eruption of this volcano on... This island just happens. There's no real buildup to it. I no. mean, there are a few scenes in the background where we see it's smoking. Yeah, there have been a few news noises reports. here and there. There's some, yeah, rumbling. But really, there isn't that increased tension where we feel like we're in a vice grip and then the release of the scene. Now, I will say that's a pretty good scene when the thing finally blows because it hits this sort of silly, goofy, gonzo, but exciting monster movie level that Mm -hmm. I think works when Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard returning as a character who maybe we'll get into. We're not quite sure how she's related to who she plays in the first one, unless (laughs) I'm forgetting or miss something. But there are the two of them and then two other supporting characters fleeing this erupting volcano. It's in all the trailers. It's in all the commercials. Seeing it all together as a piece, it does work as a sustained gonzo action set piece. And I think Bayona does pull off once they get in that gyrosphere, go over the cliff, again, not spoiling anything, it's in the trailers, and hit the water. And while you're watching the humans trying to get out of this thing behind them, these dinosaurs are falling. It's just craziness. And and there's kind of a, a thrill to it. And also some pretty clever filmmaking when they're trying to get out of that sinking gyrosphere. It's a claustrophobic single take for much of it that was pretty well crafted, I thought. So I did enjoy that whole sequence. But yeah, the whole orphanage thing, which I did not expect and is definitely there, doesn't really work at all for me. Why why would you want to put dinosaurs in the orphanage? That's essentially what happens. (laughs) It introduces a whole lot of strangeness. That might have been really interesting and then completely backs away from it. Why is a movie this strange so boring? That's that's, that's what I'm coming out of yeah. it wondering because that's the really places the it goes are so unexpected. You, you do have the orphanage in this. You have a King Kong riff for a little while where they're trying to unwisely take these creatures off the island and then it becomes something else. There are at least four movies in here. I yes. think we can agree. And I don't think any of them work fully. It keeps shifting to different ones. And it should be a lot. It should be sillier than it is or it should 
be more exciting than it is. It's fairly dull for as unusual. Or creepier than it is. Creepier. It's, a lot of things. It should be creepier as well. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And I, I can't figure out what, what the missing ingredient is. I don't have the answer either, but I agree with you 100%. Review over. <laughs> Come on. We're done. Well, <laughs> let's get to the important tell, stuff, the Chris's. Okay. <laughs> no. We'll get to it. Tell me about Pratt then on your end. Well, have there been two lead characters in a major franchise you've been less interested in as people? That, I think, is ultimately the biggest problem I have with this movie. Okay. Is they are so bland and so uninteresting. And that's mostly how they were in the first film, too. But they have a chance here to take them somewhere new, to introduce a different dynamic to their relationship perhaps and that just is familiar ground we've seen a million times in other movies like this and it doesn't introduce anything new and not only that it just doesn't spend enough time with them i'd even say i mentioned aliens in relation to jurassic world in the setup and boy that's all over this film too trevorrow Mm -hmm. and his co-screenwriter Derek Connolly, they wrote this movie like they did Jurassic World. They must be huge fans of the Alien franchise and of Aliens in particular. The idea of these people who have survived this trauma going back to confront the creatures, tracking them the way they do even, reminds me of some key sequences in Aliens. And then there is, as we talk about strangeness and on some level even a little bit of creepiness, there's this mom element. That's all I'm going to say about it. The notion of motherhood is introduced to this world in a way that comes completely out of nowhere and nothing interesting is done with it. But that's also something that pops up in the movie Aliens with Sigourney Weaver's character and taking care of Newt. But if you think about Aliens, which is just a great, great action film, when it introduces or when all the military and corporate ruthlessness really comes to light in that movie, we don't We don't flash back to Earth or go into the boardroom at all and spend time with those characters as they, in this Bond villain way, kind of lay out their master plan, right? We discover everything through Ripley and through the characters. As right, as they do. They're just this invisible, ruthless presence. And that's all they need to be. And the more we see it through their eyes and discover it along with them, the more we care about their situation and the more we're attached to them. And we get none of that here because the movie is, for some reason, so intrigued by these peripheral characters to the detriment of the people we should be caring about the most. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the point about the villain, there's a conspiracy here, so we probably shouldn't get too specific, is dead on. This this is like, it's not the corporation that's in Aliens. It's like a guy trying to do his own startup to be that corporation and isn't very good <laughs> right, at it. Right, uh, Where this goes, his plan and the whole, let's just, uh, there's a dinosaur auction <laughs> We can say we'll say that that that's kind of uh, literally off the rails. And again, this may sound like the elements to a crazy B movie, but when you put them in an A list blockbuster, that's supposed to be something more than that. The fun gets sapped out of it, and yeah. it just begins to feel turgid. There, there is a distinction from Jurassic World that I wanted to ask you about as well. One of my issues with that film was how callous it was to these creatures. There, there was a ton yeah. of mowing them down with mm-hmm. bullets and taking them out. And it seems to me that Fallen Kingdom has, has made a 
distinct decision to reverse that. Yes. And it almost goes overboard <laughs> on the awe and wonder. I'd much rather it leans in that direction because yeah. I didn't really enjoy seeing all those animals just murdered in the last film. But it doesn't – maybe it's because it's leaning on it so heavily. It's not convincing at all. I, I'm thinking of uh, the character Zia. This is a supporting character, I believe. She's a dinosaur <laughs> She says it at one point, too. Uh, so a paleo- She's a raptor doctor. A pa- there. <laughs> exactly. That's is what great. she is, Josh. Raptor doctor Zia, played by Daniela Pineda. She sheds a tear the first time she sees a moving dinosaur, right? And and we're supposed to – the music swells and our hearts are supposed to swell. Then they give us Blue, the velociraptor from the first film, receiving emergency surgery. And Mm -hmm. that's – played as this like intense hospital ER scene. Well, the whole thing is predicated on this question of whether or not these dinosaurs should be saved. And suddenly Bryce Dallas Howard's character is the biggest bleeding heart animal rights lover in the world. She's leading some sort of revolution that we're meant to understand. At all suggested by what I remember from Not from what I remember. I know that movie ends with an idea that she has become a quote unquote better person. Yeah. But which is supposedly led to But a lot has happened in these three years to her. And that's all rolled into this emotionalism they're trying to bring to this movie. Right. Think of the couple of scenes where you see a baby triceratops with its mother, adding to the mother theme you picked up. And then I think the lasting image I will have of this film, which I shouldn't characterize this way because it's meant to be very tragic but i'm just going to call it the sad brontosaurus scene yeah do you know what i you know what i, I mean i do which... and, and it's it goes on <laughs> and on and the music just gets sadder and yes. sadder and more people gather to watch this yes. very sad brontosaurus there's one compelling image in there but it's drawn out. Oh, is it drawn out? For like seven minutes, it feels like. So I do like that the movie made this turn. I wish it hadn't turned quite so drastically. Yeah, that's interesting because, again, I really don't remember much of Jurassic World, but looking over my notes, I commented on the fact that I remember how callous I felt it was about humanity in that movie, only because they seemed to revel in all the interesting ways we could watch these creatures tear apart a human being or laugh almost even sometimes at the way these bodies were disposed of. And yet it also still wanted us to see the majesty in some of these creatures. But you're right. In this film, it takes it to a completely different level. And this idea of redemption is something that, is introduced in this movie not only in the form of her character and maybe with with Owen Pratt's character, and also it even goes back to John Hammond, the character who gave us Jurassic Park in the first movie. They hearken back to that with this idea, and they— Apparently he has a twin brother now or something? I don't know. I think they, they want to somehow make it an interesting question for us to ponder after we've made this kind of mistake. We've played God, and we've— wreaked havoc on the environment by creating these creatures. Now can we do the right thing? That's that's there, but it really isn't what this movie seems to care about at all. It, it's all window dressing. It is. And and James Cronwell is plays the character I'm referring Man. to. I know he's not his his twin brother, but it's kind yeah. of like who is this guy? He, he's just like all the obvious stand-in. Who is this guy Ben? And that wouldn't be a problem to introduce someone new and say, "Hey, here's Here's a area of the lore that you weren't aware of before, but all they want him to do is to be an easy stand-in and yes. carry that gravitas over, exactly. and it it just doesn't work. Well, and Cromwell's a great actor, but it's I, not feel, his fault. I feel really, really sorry for him here. Yeah. I mean, he sits in a bed for two scenes and really doesn't get anything to do at all. 
Do you feel sorry for Jeff Goldblum, who sits behind a desk for two scenes? Yes. And you do, huh? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I guess he, he cashed a paycheck, like right? Four hours work, yeah. maybe. <laughs> but the movie, we'll say, is bookended with Goldblum. And I wish there was more of him, but what we get in this form is plenty to make me groan. The ending of this film is just an absolute howler, including specifically the dialogue. This movie actually made me really want to revisit another series that introduces some of these similar themes and ideas, but is just so, so, so much better, and yet also delivers all the same action thrills, and it's the Planet of the Apes movies. Hmm. And I still haven't seen Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but the first two are so good. All these ideas, again, about going too far with science and not being able to put the genie back in the bottle, and then, okay, now how do we coexist? What kind of world do we live in now once we have made some of those choices? But the drama is just so much better from the human perspective, from the ape perspective. Those movies are so smart, and like I said, at the same time, still manage to deliver the kind of summer thrills you would hope for from any type of film like this. Now, I know the Jurassic Park films have never strived for that. That's not what Jurassic Park really was either. That was just good summer blockbuster entertainment. No, that's a fair comparison to make. But but this movie wants to introduce those ideas, and doesn't follow through on them in any way. Exactly. And I would also say those movies are superior in the effects department. I think some of this, some of these scenes are very effective when they're more practical effects, whether they're animatronic, mm-hmm. the, the slower, quieter, close scenes with the dinosaurs. But anytime things get moving a little too fast, yeah. it's awfully blurry. And I'll also point out where does the climax take place? More night rain. We get the, which I (laughs) just can't stand. And it happens again here. And you just lose any sense of clarity in what is supposed to be really the defining action set piece of the film. I should note that I liked how Biona does seem to address the high heels controversy. Do you remember right this? Right away. About, I mean, that's yeah, how we're introduced least, to her character. <laughs> the first the time feet. you see Bryce Dallas Howard is feet first. And then there's at least one other sequence where she enters a scene and he starts on her feet. I think it's when she's getting off a helicopter on the yeah. island. And so, she's still wearing heels, as I recall. Maybe uh, they're just a little... well. She's in, a little less absurd for the environment. She's in an office know. situation when we first see her. Yes. So a little bit more understandable. Yeah. I wish I wish the movie had a lot more of that sort of self-awareness to it. Yeah. Could have amped up the silliness factor in a knowing way. And for me, it would have been a lot more fun. So that's actually an element that's in the first film. That movie is very self-aware. It knows it's a sequel. It comments on it being a sequel in a lot of ways. What I found interesting here, not interesting enough to enjoy the film or recommend it is that it's not self-aware in that same way and yet how many moments and maybe this is just inevitable when you're talking about dinosaur movies and they're roaming around a park or any type of environment expansive environment you're going to get similar shots and some of the instincts are going to be the same but how many moments feel cribbed straight out of jurassic park The eyeball coming up, which I think they did in the last film, too. The eyeball coming up on someone as they're in a vehicle. The early sounds of a dinosaur approaching and everyone getting unnerved by that before they actually see it. The majestic, if you will, shots of the T-Rex or another dinosaur 
in all of its glory after a violent encounter. Roaring, that's They're all the, the same. One. The roaring. It's well, that's, all the same shots. They pull that turning around looking at the camera roaring shot out it feels like almost every 20 minutes and all it really does is diminish its effect by the time it appears the last time it's supposed to be again sort of a a climactic crowning Mm -hmm. bit and instead you're like oh this again yeah and you mentioned the special effects i will say that having seen the original jurassic park on the big screen when it was put back in theaters for its anniversary, and really I have no sense if that was two years ago or five years ago, but fairly recently I saw that film. And coming from this, I'm sure if I put them side by side, we could all dissect and notice the improvements in technology. But you mentioned the brontosaurus scene, the one with the tear that we get the the first time we see this big creature walk along and everyone stops and beholds it. That actually feels faker (laughs) in that context to me than that original glorious moment we all remember from seeing Jurassic Park in the theater back in 1993. For some reason, it certainly hasn't gotten better. It doesn't make that moment any better. And I even felt, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I felt somehow watching it, it felt more CGI to me than I know what you back mean. in 93. Yeah, no, I had the same feeling. And you're right. A side-by-side comparison would probably reveal why my guess is it has a lot to do with just where Spielberg placed the camera, how he moved it, when he moved it, how he incorporated the characters' reactions to what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. And maybe that sort of thing can trump the latest technology. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is currently out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Next up is our poll question, kicking off the best of the year so far conversation with a few options for favorite 2018 performances. Then the film spotting top five movie Chris's or <laughs> crises. Christ. No, no, no. It's Chris. It is Chris's. Chris's. One S. Well, two S is just not right next to each other. Stay with us. What's your fiance's name? Penelope. Wow. You're like a man. She's the most precious thing in the whole world. This is a big commitment. It's lifelong. Lifelong commitment. And there's no turning back now. Oh, no. It's never too late to turn back. Robert Pattinson in that clip from the trailer for the new film Damsel, which is currently playing in limited release and opens on more screens, including here in Chicago on June 29th. The movie is a Western of sorts that, at least based on the trailer, seems to share a sensibility with something like Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Pattinson plays an affluent pioneer who ventures across the American frontier to marry the love of his life. It's written and directed by the Zellner brothers, David and Nathan, who previously directed 2014's Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, Mia Vasakowska. Stars Josh next week. This is On Tap.
it is on tap, and I'm doubly excited for it because I watched Kumiko I'm not last here? night. Well, I was no, I was <laughs> okay. Good. I'll get to that, but yeah, Kumiko is a weird little movie. It is. Oh my goodness. I mean. I don't know quite what to make of it yet. Overall, I liked it, but it's doing some really strange things. So I'm excited to see what the Zellner brothers do with the Western genre. And yeah, you're off with the family, vacation. What are you doing? You just need a break from me? I actually am going to be spending a little bit of time with my wife. We're going to be in San Francisco. There are some other destinations as well. So I won't be here. You're going to have a fill-in host, and I'm excited to have her on the show as well. A first-time film spotter. Yeah. Katie Reif from the AV Club. She and I were paired together on a radio show, I think it was last fall, and she was really great. So asked her if she'd ever be interested on in jumping on when we needed a fill-in, and she said yes. So we're doing it for Damsel. We've got a really fun top five, I think, lined up women in Westerns. Yes. So looking at, you know, in the Western genre, that's a lot of supporting characters, but a lot of rich ones as well. Yep. I've already had to give away a potential number one that Katie picked <laughs> right away. And, you know, yep. because she's the guest host, she gets to do that. Very gracious. So I think it'll be, yeah, I think it'll be a rich list. Yeah. I was a little skeptical when you first told me that there may not be enough options to make it a really compelling top five, as much as I initially did like the idea. And then we got a list of options from RPA, Andy Mitchell, and there is definitely more than enough to choose from. So I look forward to listening to that. If you have any thoughts on that top five women in Westerns or really anything else, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Speaking of the movie Damsel, we've got admit two passes to a screening of the film on Tuesday, June 26. We also have passes to a Wednesday, June 27th screening of Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado. It stars... Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, who, of course, were also featured in the first Sicario movie. This was a movie you guys considered definitely one we felt like was probably worthy of a discussion here on the show, but the screening option just doesn't really work as yeah. far as lining up with recording. We were heading that way, but I think they're screening it like the Wednesday before opening here in yeah. Chicago, so a little too tight for us. Filmspotting.net slash events is where you can enter to win passes to see both of those movies before they open and for free. Earlier this week, our Seattle listeners, those who listen to the podcast, got a chance to see the first episode premiere of HBO's Sharp Objects, a new series which stars Amy Adams. It's based on the 2006 debut novel from Chicago author Gillian Flynn, who most film spotting listeners probably know from Gone Girl. That premiere is going to be replicated. That experience more or less replicated here in Chicago, except not only is one of the stars of Sharp Objects going to be here, Chris Messina, who was also there for a Q&A in Seattle, he's going to be joined by Gillian Flynn here in Chicago on July 13th. We teased it last week on the show, but now if you go to filmspotting.net slash events, you can get all the information where, when, and how to RSVP to actually show up and see the second episode, I think we'll be watching the second episode because the first episode will actually have premiered at that point. So you'll have to do a little homework. Watch the first episode of Sharp Objects, I think on July 8th, it's a Sunday, and then you can get an early look at the second episode on Friday, July 13th, and then stick around for that Q&A after. You're burying the lead. You're going to be doing the q and right? I'm going to be moderating it, and there you I go. still need to confirm with our friend Michael Phillips, but he might be joining me on stage, and then you can hang out and... Maybe have a drink or two with us after the show at the post Q&A reception. More information again, filmspotting.net slash events. A couple meetups are also 
being thrown around, Josh, potentially with your visit to Oslo and Amsterdam coming up. And we've heard from at least one listener in each of those spots. Yeah, I think we're actually up to three now. Okay in Oslo. So we might be leaning in that direction. We'll see if we can pull something off. So if you're hearing this and live in either of those places and want to try to get together very late June, early July, Mm -hmm. let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net or hit me on social media, Larson on Film. So this Sunday, as most people are hearing this, June 24th is when we may be getting together in San Francisco for a little meetup. And you can find the details about that and RSVP there at filmspotting.net slash events. So the same place where you get all this other movie pass information, you can get details about that potential meetup in San Francisco and about potential future film spotting meetups. A listener, Simon, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, had a pretty good description of your performance in last week's Massacre Theater. He called it Sinister Bjork, which should be a band name. I like that. Although Bjork's already kind of sinister, isn't she? I'm just picturing her in that goose outfit or whatever, which doesn't seem sinister at all. Scary. That's scary. <laughs> <To you? laughs> whatever it was she was wearing at that award show 100 years ago. He also credited me for pulling off the patented AK gasp <laughs> that started the scene. If you haven't gotten around to listening to that scene, here's a taste of what you missed. <laughs> all alone, my pet. Why? Why, yes, I am. But the... The little men are not here? No. So you still have time to enter. Monday, June 25th is the deadline. If you're hearing this in time and you know the scene, if you know what character Josh is applying his sinister Bjork to. (laughs) There's a little Bjork in that. I can hear it now. Email us if you know the movie's title. Include your name and location, please. Feedback at filmspotting.net. On this episode of SVU, Matt and I podcast in the same room for the first time in six weeks. And as soon as we're in the same room together, we're struck by a flood of repressed memories of our shared childhoods. Allison, we didn't know each other as kids. That's just what it, the fear-sucking demon that lives in the sewers beneath this city, wants us to believe. Okay, ah, And now, unfortunately, to a little bit of sad news, you hear there Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore from the latest episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, SVU, of course, as it is more commonly known, a bi-weekly podcast from New York City. It focuses on the world of streaming movies, occasionally TV. Allison is a BuzzFeed film critic, and Matt is the managing editor at Screen Crush. Longtime colleagues of ours, collaborators, of ours and on that most recent episode they did a listener's choice review of the 1990 miniseries version of Stephen King's It. It's newly available on Hulu and they offered some other clown related movies available to rent or stream. They also announced that SVU is no more, Josh. I know. This is really sad. I mean, this is a long run they've had. Not only from well, 2012 is SVU, right? But they have been a pair talking about film for a long time. Going back to the IFC film exactly. podcast. Exactly. Yeah. So it's they've had a good run. I wish it could continue, but unfortunately not. Yeah. Episode 166, this episode we just played you a clip from, is the show's penultimate episode. There will be a final episode in the coming weeks. I think July 3rd, that Tuesday, is when that final episode will come out. And yeah, 2012, I remember that Sam and I were here thinking about those guys, thinking about how the IFC Film Podcast was defunct, but we still wanted those voices out there and we concocted this idea for a show with Matt and Allison, and it has had a good six-year run. And, you know, we're going to keep the feed active for a while. It's not as if 
the door has been closed completely on SVU returning in some form down the line. But we do thank everyone who has been a listener not only of this show, Original Recipe, as Matt and Allison like to call it, and Film Spotting SVU. More information about them and a link to the complete SVU archive can be found at filmspottingsvu.com. Now, what do you want? I want the throne. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. That's Michael B. Jordan with Chadwick Boseman in Black Panther. So we're sitting right about at the halfway point of the year. A good time to start talking about the top five films of the year. Start thinking about that list, at least, which we'll get to in July. We do want to start that conversation with a new poll question that's asking for the best performances of the year so far. So we looked back at some of the reviews we've given, some of the actors that we've highlighted on the show and that we know other critics are pretty excited about and what listeners have called out as well. And here's the list we've got for you to choose from. Emily Blunt in A Quiet Place, Tony Collette in Hereditary, Hugh Grant in Paddington 2. I just love that that's in the mix. Ethan Hawke from First Reformed. Brady Jandro, a first-timer in The Rider. Michael B. Jordan, who we just heard in Black Panther. Charlize Theron in Tully. And then we do have an other category because you we can feel write like— in. Yeah, you can write in, and there are some really strong options in lesser-seen films. We're thinking about Claire Foy in Steven Soderbergh's Unseen, Unsane. <laughs> We talked about Brian Cranston's great voice work as chief in Isle of Dogs, Joaquin Phoenix in You Are Never Really Here, Gina Rodriguez, a lot of people had praise for in a supporting role in Annihilation, and then Charlie Plummer, another young actor in Lean on Pete. All good options there. As with any poll question, I think that the results will favor the performances that have been seen. Sure, the bigger right? films. The ones that you're aware of. And more people have seen Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther probably than any of those other options. Tony Collette in Hereditary, that's the one on here I haven't seen, so can't vote for, unfortunately. And that movie is the newest of all of those options, so I'm sure many people do need to catch up with it. But we tried to consider some of the best lead and supporting performances of the year, the ones, as you said, Josh, that have stood out to us and seem to be in the conversation with other critics and film goers. Josh, do you have a set answer to this? Have you really considered this yet, or are you weighing a few of the options? The tough place I'm in is weighing supporting performances against lead. Yeah, because it's hard. if it's supporting, it's Michael B. Jordan for me. But in the lead category, I've got Tony Collette and Ethan Hawke duking it out. So those three, I know for sure it's among those three. I just got to work all that stuff out. Yeah. Michael B. Jordan, if we're going supporting, if we're going lead, Colette, the one I can't consider, as I said, but it would be Ethan Hawke or maybe Brady Jandro. That performance, that alchemy of the writer, that strange confluence of nonfiction and fiction and the way it all comes together. And Jandro as a novice actor, but someone who is so natural a presence on screen, I think... That's where I'm leaning, Brady Jandro in The Rider. I hope more people do get a chance to see that, especially now that, and I think it is, if I remember correctly, a golden brick candidate for us this year. For it's sure. just now coming out on DVD. Maybe by the time people hear this, it will have been out. I saw a tweet earlier this week, but for some reason, at least according to the tweet I saw, it's not being released in Blu-ray. Hmm. It's a gorgeous film. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So I really have no idea why it wouldn't get the Blu-ray treatment. But 
hopefully one way or another, more people will see that movie. And I'll mention it gets the film spotting trifecta seal of approval. Not only did we both highly recommend that film, but Sam just had a chance, our producer, to see that movie in a theater in Wisconsin and loved it. He's in. Yeah, all Excellent. in. Speaking of performances, did Chris Pratt's turn in Fallen Kingdom launch him to the top of our movie Chris Power Rankings? The film spotting top five, perhaps our most important ever, is next. Stay with us. did also need to acknowledge a few donors this week, Josh, the people who really are the lifeblood of the show, including Rob H. in Sandy, Utah, who says he's still listening and enjoying the show after many years. Keep it going. I think I met Rob for the first time out in Park City when Sam and I went to Sundance in 2007, maybe the next year in 2008. I know he's been listening since at least that long, so thank you, Rob, for that. We also heard from Sarah S. in Tacoma, Washington. Thank you for all you do. I look forward to this podcast more than any other every week. Thank you, Sarah. A Silver Club donation comes to us from Jesse Marsh in Rumford, Rhode Island. And we just got this one, Josh, last minute. Wanted to make sure we fit it in. Matt from Rochester, New York, writing in for Jay from San Antonio, Texas. I'm a longtime listener who thought that this was a great occasion for a first-time donation. Movies have been a cornerstone of my relationship with my father, who originally introduced me to your podcast. Talking about movies in your podcast has been a great way to bridge the geographical gap between my father and I. Movies have always been about family, fun, and love for me. Whether it was going to see Tim Burton's Batman the day after my sixth birthday against my mother's expressed wishes, or the yearly Christmas ritual of watching Die Hard, my father is a true lover of the cinematic, and I am eternally grateful that he took me to see both art house independent films as well as summer and holiday blockbusters. He's a huge fan of Roger Ebert's Criticism for the Masses, which is a banner you both carry on. Often you speak about the ways to introduce films to your own children, and that has to be one of the singular pleasures of being a cinephile. My donation is a thank you to you both and everyone involved in the production of Film Spotting, as well as a thank you to the person who gave me the gift of cinema. Very good stuff, Matt. Thank you so much, and thank you, Jay, for listening and sharing the show with Matt. Of course, we are just coming off of Father's Day, and I didn't watch any movies with my kids, but Josh, after brunch here in the city, we did go see Macbeth, the Teller yes, and Posner production. Yes, I need production to hear. Did it go over well? Give me a quick... Yeah, yeah. Everyone was you okay. you saw it, too, just a few days before. We saw it yep, we Wednesday last week. Mine survived. Very intense horror interpretation of Macbeth. Yes. Go okay with your kids? Yes. Good. They all three really enjoyed it. Sophie, in particular, the one who, of course, is very much into theater these days. She read Macbeth in school recently. Loves Lady Macbeth. Her phone is full of Macbeth memes. 
She's found ways to incorporate Macbeth into She showed me a couple culture. when we were over at your house. Yes, yep. and she loved that play, and she really did love the production Good. and loved the performance of Lady Macbeth. That, for me, was really a thrill. In addition to seeing movies with my kids, I really love seeing the theater with them, including Quinn, who's only 11 years old and really had a great time nice. at that show. A new Bucka Show donation comes to us from Catherine Oaks in Princeton, New Jersey, who says this donation is in honor of my father, Alan's 70th birthday. He has been and always will be my favorite person to watch and talk about movies with. Thanks, Adam and Josh, for adding to those discussions over the years. Thank you, Catherine, and happy birthday, Alan. A final gold level donation here comes to us from Mike. One's a party, one's a crowd Weston. He lives in Silicon Valley, but this donation is coming to us from the Delirium Cafe in Brussels, Belgium. He has been a silver or gold club donor to the show since 2006, and this is what he likes to do. He gives a buck a show, so 52 film spotting episodes, 52 The Next Picture Show episodes, and 26 film spotting SVU episodes. Now, wow. I don't know what to do with that additional $26. I think we'll go ahead and give it to Matt and Allison for back pay. Yeah. I think I think we <laughs> can make totally that fair. happen, Mike. <laughs> Thank you very much for all of your support and to everyone who shares some of their hard-earned dollars our way. We really do appreciate every cent that we get. Am I not sensitive, clever, well-mannered, considerate, passionate, charming, as kind as I'm handsome, and heir to a throne? You are everything maidens could wish for. Then why know? Do I know? That girl must be mad. You know nothing of madness. Chris Pine with Billy Magnuson in the 2014 film adaptation of Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods, Pine showing off some singing chops and making a case for himself as the top five Chris in all the land. Sensitive, clever, well-mannered. We'll see if he will rule the day in our top five movie Chris's. It is our definitive Chris power ranking. This started when? This being a thing where everyone talked oh, about man. the It's four been a while Chris's. now. It has been a while. I'm trying to remember when Pine was on Saturday Night Live actively making fun of it. Was that That's for right. Wrinkle in Time or was it for something earlier? I, I really don't even recall. know. But yeah, I mean, basically, it's been around long enough. It's time to settle it. it so is. let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Even if I'm not totally ready, I'm still weighing where I to love, put. I love that our silliest top five that you weren't initially on board, you've now taken so there seriously. Has, there has to be stakes. And it's, it's driven you so crazy to get right that you're still not finished as we're talking. I'm not. I'm going to I'm gonna make it up as I go, Josh. Okay, now, I, can't I did wait. love this tweet, and we're going to feature, I'm sure, a lot of listener comments here as we get to our rankings from Sarah Welch, a listener I'm pretty sure here in Chicago. Yep. She said, my personal rule of Chris's, the one I saw in a movie last is the best. The Infinity War Amendment, any movie featuring three Chris's makes me miss the missing Chris, so he wins out. Very so good. I guess Pine right now is Sarah Welch's favorite because yes. he is the one of these four Chris's who is not in Infinity War. I don't think all four of them could be in a single movie. Some Something The universe would implode. I believe so. <laughs> the tale of the tape here, all four of the Chris's were born between 1979 and 1983. We'll start with 79. Who do you think is the oldest of the four Chris's? If I had to guess, I'd say Evans is the oldest Chris. Evans is not. Chris Pratt is the oldest. He just okay. turned 39. All right. Okay. Who do you think's the youngest? Youngest Chris, I believe, is Hemsworth. You are correct. He will be 35 this August. Okay. As the youngest, he has the fewest credits on IMDb. This includes movies and television, and I'm sure a few other miscellaneous things thrown in there. 
Hemsworth, 38 on IMDb, compared to 48 for Pine and 49 for both Evans and Pratt. So right in line with each other there. I want to hear how you approach this, how you did ultimately decide on your ranking. Did you apply any criteria to it, Josh? And then we'll actually get into what isn't a top four. Oh, no, we're going to make it a top five. This is film spotting after all. So there will be a Chris that we haven't mentioned yet who enters the mix. Hey, Chris, yet to be named. I did apply some very rigorous science to this uh, to this list, Adam. And, and first off, we should note the reason you're mentioning the ages is we did require them to be of the same yeah. generation. Yeah, we're not going to consider Christopher Walken no, or no Chris, Chris Cooper no, or Chris. Exactly. Not in this case. So I did ask myself, aside from the ages, what defines a movie Chris? And and this is, this is kind of what I came up okay. with. He has to have a dreaminess that... If the camera catches him at just the wrong angle, yeah, or the material just isn't there to support him, could dissolve into blandness. Like these guys are okay, A-list stars. I think that's fair. But there's they all share something that a, a slight turn and it could go to boring. Okay. Um, I now, think I think that's why I, I we get a completely mixed up. different approach, or I phrase it differently. But I think we're actually in line with each other. Okay. We'll All right. see how it I goes. I feel like that's kind of what they have in common. That's why we – it's not just the names, why we do get them mixed up. And for the record, I say that as a fan of all these actors. Yes, like, me too. I, I genuinely like, like this them This is a all. case where the one who's in last place or the lowest ranked, that doesn't mean we dislike them. Correct. Exactly. It is a top five after all. Yes. So – Aside from that, I did sort of what you just did, looked at the filmographies. Listeners were very helpful and yes. very vocal. Well, that's <laughs> about the thing. Their Listeners opinions. are really swaying me from my ranking. Yeah, that's they, where I'm wrestling the most internally because of the impassioned pleas of our listeners. So I took that into consideration as well. And then at the end of the day, as you do with these important matters, Adam, you just go with your gut. You do. And gut instinct is where I started with this. In fact, our families actually got together Friday night and we kind of threw out our gut instinct rankings. I have now gone against those for the most part, Josh. And yeah, I did consider immediately just who I think I like the most when you say their names, who has made the highest number of good movies I thought about, who makes the most interesting choices, but all those things, and there are other factors as well, all those things culminate in, for me, a simple yet very difficult challenge. And it's one I know I have used in the past. I've applied it to some poll questions, maybe even film spotting madness and some of those choices. You walk into a movie theater. There are four screens, only four screens. You have to pick one movie to see. You have no prior knowledge of the films that are playing inside any of the theaters. There are no posters, no additional information at all. All you see above each door is a name. Hemsworth, Evans, Pine, Pratt. Now, these movies don't actually exist or don't exist yet. So you aren't taking a gamble that, well, it might be a Captain America movie if it says Evans, and I love those movies. Or if it says Hemsworth, it might be Thor. Or if it says Pratt, it's a Jurassic World movie or maybe more likely a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, of course. It could be a Star Trek movie or a Wonder Woman movie with Pine. It's none of those. This is some wholly original new movie. And you can only base your choice on the lead performer. So what it comes down to then, Josh, for me, when you think about it in those terms, it's which actor do you most enjoy watching perform? Yeah, I, I did not use that, that exact. That was very clarifying for me. Well, it's, I'm glad you used that. 
I did not, but it also makes me feel more confident of my answer okay. if I had gone that route. So Okay. So I like it. This is not a traditional countdown. We're not going to go five through one like we normally do since obviously all of our choices overlap. We are going to start with The Outlier. It's a film spotting top five. We've heard these four names. Who then is the fifth movie Chris in the film spotting cinematic universe, Josh? Well, I really was hoping that Bradley Cooper's middle name was Christopher <laughs> so that I could slide. He just seems like he'd fit, right? Yeah. And I yeah. know you're not as big of a fan. No, of him but I'm as coming I around. Am. But he could be a movie Chris. But unfortunately, that's not the case. I've now forgotten what Bradley Cooper's middle name is, but it's not Chris. I did look it up. Instead, I went with Chris O'Dowd. Yeah. An Irish actor I first saw in Bridesmaids. He was very charming and funny, playing the traditional love interest there. I actually forgot until I was looking into his filmography. He does have Marvel credentials. He had a small part in Thor. The Dark World. The one MCU movie I haven't seen. Probably not why he's on my list. But speaking of listener input, Jeff Milo sent us this email. I think he captures it well. O'Dowd's range can go from lovable loser in pirate radio to can't put your finger on it creepiness in Calvary to ball of sunshine smarmy showman in the sapphires and be believable in each role. So these are mostly character actor parts that he's had, but in all of them that I've seen, I thought he's been very good. And I do think he has leading Chris potential if he were to get that shot. Very different, of course, physically from all the other Chris's that we are going to discuss. I'd say he's not too far off from Pratt territory. Yeah, maybe so. But he is more. Cast the guy and as I a say lead this, in a Marvel movie. I say he, this he with would love. Bulk up. I say this with love, Chris O'Dowd. There's something more naturally physically goofy about him. But then that's what I really like about him. And it's something Jeff Milo gets at. I'm going to read another part from his email. He mentions that with Sam Rockwell's recent Oscar for a Martin McDonough film, we should return to the lesser appreciated Calvary, where O'Dowd is almost playing an early prototype for Rockwell's Dixon. Subtle shades of ignorance, racism, and occasional lack of tact, and something possibly dormantly sinister beneath. Here, with his reading of the line, not everyone can carry the weight of the world. You're saying he beats it up. Don't quote me on it, but that's what I'm assuming. Yeah. She speaks in riddles half of the time. I can't make any sense out of her. I think she's bipolar or lactose intolerant, one of the two. I don't know where I am with her anymore, Father. And if I'm honest with you, I'm kind of glad to have her off my hands. Even if this new fella's knocking her about? But you must have to do with me. What? (laughs) Not everyone can carry the weight of the world. So that from John Michael McDonough's Calvary Martin's brother. I love that movie was among my top 10 of the year it came out. And the fact that he is this goofy presence, naturally so goofy. I just can't use a better word for it, Josh. And yet there is that sinister quality to him in that movie. He's just a loose cannon that makes him really compelling in that movie. And I think in a lot of movies. So is he your fifth Chris? Well, I think we need to agree that we should anoint him the fifth Chris. And here's why as well. I only had one other candidate. And it is Chris Messina, who we both like. I didn't see him on the Mindy Project. I know he was on that TV show with Mindy Kaling, but he's someone who I know we've both liked in Away We Go. Yeah, I always think of him in Away We Go. Kind of crushing there. Barcelona. He's in Argo. He's in Ruby Sparks, another movie I like. He is, I think of him as an indie guy who brings some natural charm and a really good sense of humor to his parts. I don't feel like he's ever really gotten the right juicy role for him yet. I remember seeing an interview with him, I think on a late night talk show, and he was talking about last year's Affleck movie, 
Live by Night. And he plays a gangster in that movie, and he gained like 40 pounds for it. And I think, I just got the impression that Chris Messina thought maybe this was going to be one of those breakout roles for Mm -hmm. him, and then nobody saw that film, including, I think, neither of us. No, I didn't see that, but he is, he's also one of the most reliable faces. You know, when he comes on screen, he was one of those guys, you know, this is going to be good, no matter what the rest of the movie is. I completely agree. I don't think he works for this list, though, because I think he's a little bit older. He is a little bit older, born in 74. He has 58 credits to his name, but just a little bit out of the range of these other Chris's. I think O'Dowd is a perfect compliment to the other. So Messina, honorable mention Chris. Yes. O'Dowd is now... Oh, I, I had I have, Yeah, I've I had him, him at five. And number four. I mean, I'm really going to sh- <laughs> I knew you I'm gonna were going to shake do this. things up in the Chris universe. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, I, I won't just tell knew you. It. I won't tell you who he's surpassing just quite yet. Well, you are about to, I think, because we are now actually going to get to the the big four, if not the top four, according to Josh, and we're going to do this in the order that they came out in a recent Twitter poll I posted at Film Spotting. 1,500 responses, pretty good number over just a couple of days. The definitive Chris ranking poll, I put him in alphabetical order and coming in last, according to Film Spotting listeners. Fourth of four, Josh. Chris Pratt, 18%. Where did Chris Pratt come out for you? Here is where I abandon my family. <laughs> Very pro yes. Chris Pratt. Yes, they are. Uh, I am as well. To be clear, once again, we are favorable towards all of these Chris's, but I've got him at number five. O'Dowd passed him up. And I think this is strictly a matter of the material he's been given or has chosen. Clearly, neither of us feels that the Jurassic World movies serve him very well at all. I'm not that wild about the Guardians of the Galaxy films. I'm a little cooler than most Uh people on those. I do admit he has some very funny moments in them. For me, he's maybe one of the better things about them. So I will give him that. I think Infinity War is a really good example of his Marvel problem, though. He gets some of the biggest laugh lines in that movie. For sure. But he's also... At the heart of some of the story problems yeah. that we discussed, I he's knew saddled you with you a in, real burden. <laughs> yes, you in particular were bothered by the way Peter Quill fails in that film. I've never bought the romance between him and Zoe Saldana's Gamora, which is crucial to Infinity War, and it just doesn't have the payoff it needs because of that. So I don't know that Pratt has found the right stuff to really catapult him as far as the other Chris's have gone. He here's the bottom line for me. The guy has not had a chance to do anything as good as Andy Dwyer in Parks and Rec mm-hmm. in the movies. I still think that's his best performance by far. And so I can't You're probably rate, right. I can't rank him higher because of that. Okay, that's all fair. And first, I did not think so boldly as to consider putting Chris O'Dowd or anyone else ahead of the four people who inspired our list. You went out on a limb there and we got God bless you, up. Josh. Okay. But that doesn't mean I'm not bold. Chris Pratt's my number two. What? (laughs) Again, go back to my criteria. What possible reason? I'll try. I'll try to answer you, Josh. Here's my question for you. According to your calculus, Uh if his name is over the theater, Marquis, there's a very small chance that's a good movie. No, I don't think so at all. I think it would be... Look at what he's picked. (laughs) Yes, but I'm not basing it on that. I'm basing it on... 
just the performance, him. just him as a performer. But has he proven himself able to find something that will allow him to perform? Are you going to let me explain? Okay, go ahead. I'm very upset My about question, this number Josh. two ranking of Chris Pratt. <laughs> I knew you would be. <laughs> Does anybody remember laughter? Does anybody go to the movies to be entertained anymore? Now, another name that is going to come up that I might actually be moving from number three to number one could just as easily be in this spot in addition to number one. It's that close between these top three. But that actor, he undoubtedly has more range than Pratt. Probably everyone on this list we're considering has more range. But I think range only goes so far if you're applying my theater test. I can't count on what range is going to offer me for two hours. But I can almost guarantee that if I walk in the door marked Pratt, I'm going to laugh out loud somewhere between one and seven times. And that's a lot. That's a lot for me. And I think I know I'm going to marvel at least once at a bit of physical or verbal humor, something that he brings to that moment. An humor he brings, a an reaction. expression, exactly. That's true. That he brings as a performer to the material. And I say all of this as someone who knows Andy Dwyer more from memes than actual Parks and Rec episodes. I probably saw two or three episodes of that series. Enjoyed it. I know why everyone loves it, just was never able to devote the time. Now, secondary to this, but I will mention it. I started by just considering their filmographies, and I ranked, for me, their individual top five movies. Pratt's got a pretty dominant, to me, top four. Her, Zero Dark Thirty, Moneyball, and the Lego movie. Now, the counter to that is he's a supporting player in three of those. And in Zero Dark Thirty, he literally could have been replaced by any other actor who looked the part, and it would have been the exact same movie. But I like that vocal performance a lot in the Lego movie, where he's playing the regular guy and yet is never yeah, boring the way you would expect the regular guy to be. That's the real counter to my ranking of him. I love the Lego movie. Yep. I, I would probably say, as much as I do like his performance, there are maybe six or seven other things about that movie I love more, but he's good there. There's he no really arguing that. That's and, a strong one. Look, it's, it's not my fault. I have no idea how this thing got on my back. Of course, buddy. I believe you. Great. I believe you, too. You see the quotations I'm making with my claw hands? It means I don't believe you. Why else would you show up with that thing on your back just three days before President Business is going to use the crackle to end the world? President Business is going to end the world? But he's such a good guy. And Octan, they make good stuff. Music, dairy products, coffee, TV shows, surveillance systems, all history books, voting machines. Wait a minute. Come on, you can't be this stupid. As Scott Hatterberg in Moneyball, it's not one of the key strengths of that movie, but I was re-watching some of it earlier today, and the scene where Brad Pitt's character and one of his coaches, I think, goes to try to recruit him to play first base is one of the best scenes in the movie. I did find this profile of him recently in Vanity Fair, where the writer said he played Andy Dwyer, the friendly chubby boyfriend on Parks and Rec, before executing a miraculous switch to action hero in 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy. It'd be like George Costanza turning into Harrison Ford, and Pratt is compared to Harrison Ford, though Pratt is funnier. Looking for the proper mix, I'd say Bruce Willis with a dash of Seth Rogen. He can play deadpan wise-ass better than just about anyone. I agree. I agree with the assessment, the comparison of Willis mixed with Seth Rogen and how good he is at being that deadpan wise ass. I guess I just find it enjoyable. And that Star-Lord role, I'm with you. I'm kind of mixed. I'm pretty in the middle on those Guardians movies. But if you think about Pine and Evans or Hemsworth, despite how talented they are, 
I don't think if you replace Chris Pratt in those movies with any one of those guys that those movies work better. In fact, I think they probably work Uh. worse. I think that Quill character needs not only a goofball, a la Pratt and Chris O'Dowd, but they need a self-deprecating quality, that that overstuffed sense of self that actually reveals just how kind of weak he really is. Not just an ability to be comedic, which all three of those actors definitely have. I think we we need to root for him a little bit because we actually kind of pity him and find him to be pathetic. And then he surprises us. And I guess I like those surprises with Pratt. Yeah, I think I think Hemsworth for sure could probably do the Star-Lord role. He'd be the closest, and, Yeah, maybe. he'd be the closest. Pine could probably do it too, but, but it would be different. It would absolutely be different. Okay. All right. So we start off with a massive disagreement. <sighs> Let's go on. Let's just move Let's on. Let's go on. Third place in the film spotting listener poll, Chris Evans, 23%. Where did you rank him? Well, Adam, we've often said we have smart listeners, and I agree here. Okay. I have Chris Evans ranked three on my list, and my instinct was that he was going to be a lot higher. Yeah, Because me too. I love his Captain America. Absolutely love him. I think he's essential to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's he's sort of the earnest heart of what's going on there. And I think without that, otherwise, it might tilt way too far towards smarminess and snarkiness. I like that it has that element to it with a lot of its characters, but only because you've got Captain America there holding things together. Earth's mightiest heroes. Pulled us apart like cotton candy. Seems like you walked away, all right? Is that a problem? I don't trust a guy without a dark side. Call me old-fashioned. Well, let's just say you haven't seen it yet. Otherwise, though, Evans is fine in Snowpiercer. He's pretty funny in a bit part in Scott Pilgrim versus Mm -hmm. the World. Uh, in the first Fantastic Four movies, no. which is we don't have to even mention those. Yeah, but but you do. I mean, it's it's on his record. If he has another gear. I haven't seen it. I know he has That's done a, good way to put it. a few dramatic roles, so so maybe this is on me more than him, but I don't recall a lot of conversation or acclaim for some of the other stuff he's done. So I've got Evans at three solely on the strength of his Steve Rogers. Okay, well, I have him at four, and I am surprised like you that he's that low for me just based on where I thought he would be. I thought he'd be in my top two when I was just going off of my gut instinct. He does have a lot of very good movies. You mentioned Scott Pilgrim. I don't love quite as much as a lot of people do, but he's pretty funny in that in a very Mm -hmm. bit part. I do like the Bong Joon-ho film Snowpiercer quite a bit. I'm glad he made that choice as well. I'm glad he made the choice to be in the Danny Boyle film Sunshine, even if I don't particularly remember his performance or character. But of course, Captain America, those are, for me and for you, the best Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And whatever new battle gear he's wearing in Infinity War with the whole just got back from Burning Man beard and hair, well, that's the Chris I most... It's, it's a little more trimmed than Burning Man, Adam. A little, but that's that's the Chris I most want to be, apparently. I didn't know that until I saw <laughs> Infinity War. He also, just his overall persona, he seems like a good dude. A smart dude, as much as we can determine these things based on a public persona. I like where his head's at. He's so incredibly sincere and earnest, yes, a presence on and off screen. Rory Dunn, a listener, said something similar on Twitter and might be right. He brings the most gravity and goodwill to his performances. Yeah. Maybe so. But sincerity and goodwill, earnestness. Those aren't necessarily fun. That's not going to make even, you a top Chris. No, they're not even that interesting. So of the four, 
he, for me, I realized, was the actor I think I'm least likely to be transported somewhere solely by a Chris Evans performance. Like you said, where's that next gear that is going to transport me there? Right now, I think he's the least likely to pull it off, despite how much I do appreciate him overall as an actor and, as I said, a person. But based on that, he's fourth. All right. Tell everyone about the that. handle's imprinted, right? Like a security code? Whosoever is carrying Thor's fingerprints is, I think, the literal translation. Yes, well, that's, uh, that's a very, very interesting theory. I have a simpler one. You're all not worthy. <laughs> Next up on our Chris Power ranking, film spotting listeners have in second place Hemsworth, 27%. So all pretty close, 18, 23, 27% Hemsworth. This is where things get dicey. Okay. Things get really tough up here at the top. I also have Chris Hemsworth as the number two Chris. Okay. And as you know, this is Debbie's by far favorite Chris. So yeah. naturally, I have to put him at number two. It's, it's a reasonable way to deal with my insecurity about that. So number two he is. <laughs> he could have been my number one, though, Adam. I was on board with the sense of self-awareness that he brought to the part of Thor with the first movie. I like the first Thor more than most people because I think that germ of self-awareness was definitely there. They allowed him to really live into it with further Thor performances. I think you see hints of it in something like Cabin in the Woods and Ghostbusters. I still contend he gave the funniest performance in that recent Ghostbusters. For sure. He's great. Sadly, but he did. Now, Range, well, he's shown that he's willing to try considering he teamed up with Michael Mann, of all people, for the 2015 hacking thriller Black Hat. He was probably... I think mostly a model there for man's cinematic stylings, but he did bring a nice intimacy to the performance as well. So I like that he made that choice and went in that direction. Remember also, he was in Star Trek. He yeah. was the father yeah. of Pines, George. James T. Kirk. So nice connection there. I yeah. guess that's another reason he should probably be at number one, but I'm going to go the way <laughs> listeners went and rank him at number two. Okay. Well, we agree that we both probably should have had Hemsworth at number one. And in fact, up until about an hour ago, I had him there. But what about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom changed? Yeah, mind, changed Adam. my mind about Chris you're Hemsworth. In the, you're in the middle of Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> no, really thinking, I, oh, I don't think Hemsworth is going to be number one. I'm bumping him down to number three. And I think it's because three? I just, yeah, okay. I just can't make as strong of a case as I hoped I'd be able to make based on when I applied the theater test. Hemsworth did stand out for me. I have to give that some credence. And I think I'll try to articulate it. There is something purely pleasurable about watching him as an actor perform. He's a compelling superhero. He's a compelling dramatic actor. Black Hat applies there. I think even Cabin in the Woods, whatever you want to call that movie, there's elements of drama, of comedy, of horror. And he is the best thing about Ghostbusters, partly due to how poorly conceived that movie was. The most enjoyable scenes were the ones where his dim-witted but oh-so-wanting-to-help assistant played off of Kristen Wiig and company. He gave us there, though, a glimpse of the comedic abilities that he had and that he would show later with Thor Ragnarok, a movie that I respect and admire maybe more than actually love. I really like Taika Waititi's approach, the absurdity of that approach. But I think it really only works because of how deftly Hemsworth handles the tone. And without him and without that ability, I think that movie would even fall down the MCU rankings more for me than it is. And I hate to dwell too much on those MCU movies, but I feel like now through those three films, even though I haven't seen the second Thor movie, through the Avengers movies, he's now the superhero 
who's been put through the most as an MCU character. I think really put through the ringer. I know we can look at Tony Stark and probably a few others, but he's this Norse god who the first movie made a lot out of being a fish out of water. And now they've turned him into really, I think, the most interesting of all of those heroes, the character who is actually suffering the most, who has the most kind of range of emotions that he is going through at any one time. And I think that's a depth that Hemsworth brings to that character. And I think we touched on this last week when we were teasing this top five, that I love those scenes in Infinity War where Pratt and Hemsworth play off each other. It's so smart how they use them because those characters are obviously such natural opposites. They're crisp personas are antithetical to each other, where Hemsworth is this formidable presence who surprises us by being silly sometimes. But he's someone who doesn't take himself too seriously, or at least as that Thor character has evolved. And then Pratt is this silly presence who occasionally surprises us by being formidable, but all he does is take himself too seriously. So you put those two together, someone who's always in command and in control of the situation and someone who never is, but thinks he is or desperately wants to be they're perfect foils for each other and the way that thor character has evolved someone who i thought would be frankly a pretty boring superhero and the way that he's become now the superhero who i'd probably be most inclined to go watch another movie that was just about them an individual thor movie regardless of who the director is i think that would be the case and i give hemsworth the brunt of the credit for that i really wish i had my hammer hammer quite unique was made from this a special metal from the heart of a dying star. And when I spun it really, really fast, it gave me the ability to fly. You rode a hammer? No, I, I didn't ride the hammer. The hammer rode you on your back? No, no, no. I, I used to spin it really fast, and it, it, would, it would pull me off the... Oh, my God. The hammer pulled you off? The ground. It would pull me off the ground, up into the air, and I would fly. Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me. Well, and for me, by now, you know in these Avengers movies who you're going to perk up for on when they come on the screen. You know, when when they show up, when it's their turn to get three, four minutes, however they dice these things up, you're like, oh, oh, this this will be good. This I want to see. And yeah, I think Hemsworth is at the top of that list right now for me when it comes to those films. Okay, so if people are playing along at home and they're crossing the Chris's off their list, they... I'm sure people have, you know... Oh yeah, the board. The blackboard yeah, drawn the up board. and they're tracking everything. And we'll recap this later because yes. I know it's oh so important how we have ranked them. Film Spotting listeners on Twitter did decide that the top movie Chris with 32% of the vote is Chris Pine. And it would seem that we agree, Josh. They made the right choice. Okay. Consensus. Consensus. We're going to have Chris Consensus. Oh, the <laughs> universe, is right. The universe is pleased there's, tonight. Yeah, maybe there's not balance. Maybe we need Thanos to bring some balance and give us another Chris, but we're going with Pine. It's all about the range. It really, for me, I know you sort of discounted that with uh, your calculus there about the theaters, but it really is for me all about the range. Adam Wells shared this on my Facebook page. Pine has turned into a fascinating actor who I can't wait to see, whether it's as the lead in summer popcorn flicks like Star Trek, the love interest in Wonder Woman, or an occasionally heavy dramatic turn like Hell or High Water. He's making much better choices with what he works on, and he is pulling off the different tones of his projects with aplomb. I do think Hell or High Water is crucial for 
his filmography here. And it's a film I still need to revisit. I liked it quite a bit, liked him in it, Mm -hmm. but I think I might've underrated it. And when I think of him, I now think of that part. I think of certain scenes in that film in the context of all this other bigger stuff that he's done as well. I don't think he'd be at number one for me if it wasn't for Hell or High Water and his filmography. I've been poor my whole life. Told my parents, their parents before them. It's like a disease. Passing from generation to generation becomes a sickness. That's what it is. In fact, every person you know. But not my boys. Not anymore. This is theirs now. Now, lots of other listeners pointed out his musical turn that we heard into the woods. I actually wasn't quite as high on him in that, but I do like the chance he took and that he can do that, that he has that in his toolkit. That is very impressive, whatever you feel about the performance or the film. Here's the last thing, though, that really did put him over the top for me. He has everything I think that all the other Chris's have to varying degrees, but he has all that stuff. And then he has this a huge generosity as an actor when you watch him on screen. I'm thinking of recent supporting parts like the dad in Wrinkle in Time, where he's fantastic, or the love interest, as Adam Wells mentioned in Wonder Woman. He does really great work in both of those films, but he also knows how and when to concede a scene to the actor or the character that he's sharing it with, to give it over to them for the sake of what the story needs, what the film itself needs, what his fellow performer needs. Mm -hmm. That's always something he's willing to do. So basically, I think I get the sense that Pine might be the one trying the least to be ranked number one Chris. Hmm. And for that, I think I Hmm. I have to put him up there. Well said. I think for me, it really was, as I suggested, the listeners who kind of wore me down here because I really couldn't argue with some of their takes. Alex Charner on Twitter said, performance by performance, Pine's versatility, skill, and willingness to take artistic risks makes him my choice. Sean Lesher said, only one of these Chris's has sung Sondheim on film, so he shall be the Chris that is best. And I honestly expected to counter that because Sam also we really have consensus. Sam has Pine at number one. And when I suggested that I might put Pratt even ahead of him, it was Sam who said, well, but Sondheim, like the fact that Pine can even do that. He was giving him points for that. Right. I really thought that if I Googled it, I'd find that Chris Pratt also has that ability that he probably just hasn't shown it yet. Possible. But I did enough YouTubing to find that Chris Pratt is one of those singers who can hold a tune. He could not pull off appearing in not any Sondheim, musical. Huh? No, and certainly not Sondheim. He couldn't. I don't know about Hemsworth and Evans, but that's not the sole reason why we're putting Pine here at number one. Dustin Mills in Metamora, Illinois, said, underrated performance for Pine is the finest hours. His performance makes this sappy melodrama a surprisingly enjoyable film. He plays every role with a confident sincerity, there's that word like Evans, that makes him and his co-stars better. Generosity, Josh. He might be the best actor right now. He doesn't mean just among the Chris's the best. He says, well, maybe second to Oscar Isaac. I think when that word versatility comes up, it makes sense. And it makes sense for him to be at number one because he's in some ways an amalgam of all the other Chris's. He has generally the comic timing of Pratt. He has the leading man good looks and, yes, the sincerity of Chris Evans. And he has the charisma and charm of Hemsworth. I didn't like Into the Woods. I didn't like that 
movie. And I do recall, I rewatched it today and it made a lot more sense to me now. On first viewing, I recall thinking that Pine actually went too far with that character, specifically in the musical number scene that we heard and that agony scene. And I get it. It's a riff on the Cinderella Prince. He's winking. He's winking the same way that the whole movie, in a way, is winking at us. But he's winking so much. It's so hammy. It's almost like Pine instead is doing William Shatner doing a Stephen Sondheim (laughs) That's my memory of it, too. (laughs) So I was a little bit down on it, but rewatching it today, I enjoyed it more. Let me tell you why I didn't think initially he was going to be my number one. And I will restate that. Like you, I like all four of these Chris's in question quite a bit. He maybe has given the best performance of the bunch in Hell or High Water, and I do love his Captain James T. Kirk. I love that he's got the acting chops that maybe some of the other Chris's don't have, but I think he might be the least likely, or I would be less likely, to find him to be the best thing about whatever movie he's in. The same way we talked about what Pratt brings to the humor in Guardians of the Galaxy, a better example would be Hemsworth and Ghostbusters or what he is doing in some of those Avengers movies recently and in Thor Ragnarok. I don't know that I would watch Hell or High Water, and I love that performance. It was in my top five lead actors of the year. I still don't know that he's ever going to be the thing, the element of a film that as an actor I say he's better than the material. Well, he stands out. So what? Maybe that's the flip side of the generosity thing. And and maybe that's not so bad. It's not. You're right. And it maybe shows that he is making some good choices. One of those choices that a few listeners mentioned, Z for Zachariah, I haven't seen. Kevin McLenathan was a listener who sent us a very good note on that and said this about Pine. All four of them are more or less equally adept at running through the paces required for leading man roles. Stoicism, charm, humor, heroism. I think that's fair, but Pine has proven himself capable of playing other notes that the other three have either not attempted or not succeeded at that, according to Kevin. And thus, we end our Chris Power ranking. And we crown Pine the Uber Chris. We do. We can't wait to hear your thoughts. You know what my favorite thing about this top five is? There's really no honorable mentions. We got Messina (laughs) in, and we don't have to to wax on about all the things that we— wanted to throw in to make sure we didn't sound stupid. I think we probably covered it. If there's another Chris out there, we should have included. I feel like we would have heard by now. Yeah. Tell us what we got wrong, though, with our rankings. Who is the true master of all the Chris's? Feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net is where you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can vote in our current poll where we're asking about the best performance of the year so far. Also, if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and for a little while yet anyway, Film Spotting SVU. Find both of them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, we wish... We could recommend that you see it. There's lots of Chris movies I'm sure you need to catch up with instead. Next week on the show, Josh and guest critic Katie Reif from the AV Club will be here to review Damsel, the absurdist Western from the writing, directing brother team David and Nathan Zellner. The movie stars Robert Pattinson and Mia Wasikowska. The top five is Women in Westerns. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, who... 
suggested the movie Chris's idea, we can all thank him. Very proudly. Is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can find a couple of new listeners. Our music this week was by U.S. Girls. It comes from the album A Poem Unlimited. More information is at usgirls.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.